Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly, and I am here to tell you about the awesome stuff we have going on at The Ringer. It's pizza day on Tuesday this week. We're doing brackets. We're talking about pizza and pop culture, and our staff is breaking down, which is definitively the best pizza. Also, we are launching a brand new podcast with Ryan Russillo called Dual Threat. It'll be a weekly podcast focusing on both the NFL and college football. It'll air Wednesdays throughout the football season, and first episode is being released on Wednesday, August 29th. So read about pizza on Tuesday, listen to Ryan on Wednesday, and check out lots of other good stuff on TheRinger.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are black again. This is On Shuffle, and I'm your host, Micah Peters, a staff writer at The Ringer, which is, again, a great website. And today, we are going to be talking about the miseducation of Lauren Hill, which is now 20-0 years old. We're going to be talking about that with Joan Morgan, who wrote the literal book on Lauren Hill. And also, I'm going to have my colleague Matt James on to talk about some recommendations. Let's get into it. whatever you may think about her, is a genius and has always belonged deeply to herself. It's one of the reasons she hasn't released new music in 20 years. Oh yes, you're old. The Miseducation of Lauren Hill came out 20 years ago now. It is an undisputed classic, a triumph, but over two decades, our opinions on it have changed. Who better to help me talk through how than the hip-hop feminist and scholar Joan Morgan, who wrote the literal book on Lauren Hill? It's called She Begat This, 20 Years of the Miseducation of Lauren Hill, and it's out now. Joan, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So in the book, uh, you and you've talked to, you know, like several uh, figures in around, I guess, Lauren Hill's career. And, and in, in addition to critics um, who think differently than you about the album, but one of them that you talked to was uh, Jason Jackson, who recounted first hearing uh, to Zion on the album and yeah. was just like deciding yes. that he said, I was like, oh my God, leave the group, bail on the Fugees. He was talking <laughs> about, you need to be making great music. Can you describe to me the first time you heard to Zion? Um, I don't remember the first time I heard it exactly when it was because um, I was pregnant and going through a very difficult pregnancy, so everything is a bit of a blur. But I, mm -hmm. I can tell you that um, it was a it, it was medically a difficult pregnancy, and because it was medically a difficult pregnancy, emotionally a difficult um, pregnancy, and the, the doctors were really encouraging me um, not to go through with it, and that song became my my bible and my anthem and my kind of how i got through so it it meant a lot look at your career they say lauren baby use your head but instead i chose to use my heart now the joy of my world is inside The 
the song for, and I have no idea why you're listening to this if you don't know what the song is already, but it is <laughs> about uh, Lauren Hill's impending uh, pregnancy. Uh, the She was encouraged at the time not to go through with it. It's a mistake. It's a bad for your career. Because she was incredibly young when she made this album. She made the album at 23 years old, which... Um, I mean, like, would fill anybody with <laughs> this feeling of an in, of human inferiority, as uh, <laughs> as Lindsay Zolad so delicately put it in her piece about your book, which you can read on theringer.com, which is a great website. Um, <laughs> like I was saying before, the book looks accents on the legacy of the album by bringing in dissenting voices, and including your goddaughter, who calls the album judgy. Um, <laughs> and you basically raised this interesting point about kind of you came of age at a different time where these were things that you mainly had to learn for yourself. I, I think it's even um, more than that. I think that they weren't necessarily even just things that we had to learn for ourselves. My, I hope my goddaughter forgives me because I'm sure <laughs> she had no idea that she would come up and almost every interview, but <laughs> as a dissenting voice. Um, I think that 20 years is a long time, but also close enough to people in memory, in uh, not to be distant memory. So we forget that we weren't using terms like binary, queer, uh, queer studies hadn't fully taken hold yet, cisgendered, heteronormative, I don't like labels. All of that stuff is very much the parlance of the 21st century. And this book, this album dropped at the end of the 20th. So a lot of the things that seem kind of uh, matter of fact to the woke ones right now mm-hmm. um, are things that my generation is at that point creating language for how do we deal with some of these things? How do we deal with some of these tensions? I mean, that's how hip hop feminism really came to be. So the reason that it feels judgy is because my goddaughter's generation was able to inherit a um, another generation's work of theory and and languaging. Yeah, it's uh, standing on the shoulders of your forebears, so to speak. Uh, this album came out when I was seven, <laughs> and mm. like it was I. And on top of that, like I mean, you you bring up this point in the book itself where you were talking about. This is my generation has such like there's a it's possible to major in in hip hop studies or whatever. Like I had a history of hip hop class where I learned about most of the backstory around the album, whereas going into that, I was just kind of like, this is Rita from Sister Act Two, who I have been trying to recreate these vocal runs in the bathroom mirror for <laughs> for years <laughs> at this point. But another thing is that you wrote, we turn mortals into gods, queens, even if they're only women, and then summarily pick them apart at the first hint of disappointment. What is kind of a difference in the critical reception in the 90s versus Lauren Hill's critical reception now? You know, I, I think that varies. I think there is a very strong and large group of people who just love her and love what she represented and loved the kind of cultural um, shift she brought about by releasing this album because it it's it's a, it's iconic because it's an incredible piece of 
uh, it's an incredible musical con- contribution. But 20 years later, it's really clear to be able to look back and see the way that Lauren just opened the doors um, for so many things now that we take for granted. Like 20 years ago, there was to see a uh, dark-skinned Black woman on the cover of a magazine with natural hair was, um, particularly if they were mainstream, white fashion magazines was unheard of. Um, now you can look at any, look at a Gucci ad and see women with teeny weeny froze. There's a whole like naturalista um, black hair, black natural uh, hair movement that is uh, worth billions of dollars. So, yeah. um, but those things didn't exist uh, before Lauren. So I think people are still deeply, um, many people are still deeply in love with the album, deeply in love with the space that she made for them to enter. The end of the 90s was a particularly violent time in hip-hop. We'd lo- just lost Biggie a few, um, two years before. We'd just lost Tupac, and those things were six months um, apart. So, and if you were a woman in hip-hop particularly, you were really dealing with the rise of the misogyny and kind of asking yourself, how do I continue to love something that doesn't seem to love me back. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lauren was the breather, the bomb, the um, the relief in many ways. And, and so many people are still very loyal to that. Um, I think that there are other people who were loyal to that for a long time and then feel uh, betrayed or feel entitled to more music from her mm-hmm. than they've gotten because they'd only, they feel like they should have gotten more than one album. And then you just have, you know, your cadre of people who um, have gone to see her perform live and are angry about the late performances and the, you know, the late arrivals and the the, the fact that the sets might have been shorter. So it's a mixed bag. I, I think that she has um, emerged as a complicated figure over the last 20 years. But what remains undeniable is the cultural impact and the musical impact that this album had. That was another question I actually wanted to ask you. Have you been to one of the recent live shows? I mean, like, have you had that experience? I I haven't. Um, I do have a thing about paying for concert tickets and people coming (laughs) (laughs) on time. That's just, that's, that's, admittedly, I have a thing about that. Um, If someone gave me a ticket, I would, I would absolutely go. Um, And I've heard it really ranges, you know, um, I have friends who saw her particularly at the Hollywood Bowl or the L.A. shows recently who said she was absolutely incredible. Um, I end the book with Bev Bond, who talks about a show that she did in support of Black Girls Rock that Bev said just that people were absolutely in awe. And then, you know, then you have the flip side of that. So I think what is unquestionable is that she can still bring it, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not you get that in the particular show you go see is up for debate. Yeah, it's um the showing up two hours to not at all, like you know, two hours late to not at all, is definitely one of those things where we bring about questions about you know what does she owe her fans? Does she love us back or not? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's just talk more generally about the about uh, miseducation for a second. What about it sonically made it stand out? Uh, about its different fusions of sound. You know, I I think that the '90s is a particular moment moment um, musically in terms of Black popular music in the United States. So there is this really nice relationship between dancehall and hip hop that we hadn't really seen before. There's a cultural embrace. Um, 
where the the two kind of go back and forth really seamlessly. And part of that is, um, you know, you when you look again with the long view, remember when Bob Marley died in the United States, he had never been played on Black American radio. Mm-hmm. Um, when he, it was really important to him, even though the Whalers are one of the biggest acts in the world, when he finally got a date to play in the United States, he could only get it, the band could only get it opening for the Commodores. You know, it's kind of like, you know, saying to, I don't know, Beyonce that you'd have to open for, I don't know, a Lady Gaga. It's 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 mm-hmm. sort of, it's really weird. It's on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, they're just, those gates weren't open. There wasn't that kind of relationship between uh, Black American music and uh, uh, Jamaican music and reggae. And by the time you get to the 90s, you have a second generation of immigrants, basically, who have either been born in the United States or grew up in the United States, and they're going to school with Black Americans. Black Americans are going to school with Caribbean people. And so you can go to a party and hear dance hall and hear hip-hop. So I think that she benefits from that moment, but I think that she also really beautifully just sort of positioned herself as a global citizen of the diaspora when it comes to Black music. And she just felt like all the genres were really hers for the taking I know all the tricks from bricks to kingdom my ting done major kingdom one wrong to understand el boogie la viola but if a thing tests me run to me can can't take a threat to me no one son el been this way since creation a groupie call you far from temptation now you want ball over separation she makes forays into Afropop. She makes forays into soul. She uses reggae liberally. And she, you know, I mean, she's one of the best MCs of all time. And nobody else did that. Um, she took what the Fugees did and pushed it even further. And so I think that it was singular and unique, but very much um, in keeping with the pulse of where uh, Black music was in the United States in the 1990s. Mm. When you were digging into, when you were, you know, deep in the thickets of research for this book, what was something that surprised you or stood out? Uh, You know, (laughs) what surprised me the most was that Lost Ones wasn't the first single. Wait, it wasn't? (laughs) No, it's not. It's doo-wop. Right. It's uh, it's doo-wop that thing. Mm. Wow. And then, uh, so, you know, I asked Jason about it, who was her manager at the time. And um, and I remember hearing Lost Ones Out. And I remember just the electricity that was going off in New York around the record and every time people heard it. And that's how, you know, he told me that fantastic story of Lauren went to go play the beginnings of the miseducation for, according to Jason, um, for Sony. She sat down with uh, the studio, the heads, um, including Tommy Mottola, and no one liked it. Like, they basically told her to go back to the drawing board um, because they wanted the Fugees with just the girl, and she wanted to do something very different. And so they, uh, legend has it, they went to another record label mm-hmm. and um, pressed Lost Ones up on vinyl and just on some serious, like, hip-hop ingenuity slash thuggery, gave it to every DJ, every, you know, it was on every mixtape. They basically just released it. And so everyone had been waiting 
so long for, you know, the Lauren solo effort. And Lost Ones was deliberately hardcore. It was deliberately to the audience that was committed to her as an MC. So we all thought it was the first single. And there was so much fire around it, it kind of forced Sony's hand to release the album that as is. You just lost one. What's a bomb bomb? Um, do up that thing. So you were talking about how much you enjoyed the music video, the kind of split between the Lauren Hill that you would see on the cover of magazines and then also the hair pressed and, you know, like rocking a beehive and then being able to <laughs> embody both of those things and be both and instead of either or. What was the cultural importance of that at the time? Yeah, you know, it's funny because when people call the album judgy, that's one of the lines that seems to, the line in doo-wop about uh, fake, fake nails hair. by Koreans. Yeah. Baby girl, respect is just the minimum. Nigga, you still defending them now. Lauren is only human. Don't think I haven't been through the same predicament. Let it sit inside your head like a million women in Philly pen. I always find I never thought about it. And part of the reason I never thought about it is because she's clearly in a video wearing fake hair. So whatever the lyrics said, I don't think she had that much commitment to it as a, a sentiment. I've certainly seen her do photo shoots wearing straight hair. You know, she's a bit of a Gemini. She's a lot of a Gemini. Um, I am too. We can often be well, contradictory. So am I. <laughs> you know, we can say one thing one moment, do another thing another moment, and it all feels like consistent to us. So I think, you know, what people took as an indictment, she was just taking as a bit of lyrical and uh, artistic liberty. So, uh, in and I actually think the musical efforts, as you talked about, the 2014 Black Rage that have just strictly been about politics, mm -hmm. um, have been less successful because I think that she is absolutely mesmerizing when she's letting us, when, when she's being vulnerable. And the L Boogie of the 90s allowed herself to be really vulnerable with her, her audience. Um, Ms. Hill does not have that same vulnerability. And so I think that it, it creates a very different kind of music. She always speaks for herself. Have you seen the, the Medium post that, she, that, that was online last night? I read it last night. Mm. And she was talking about how basically debunking the myth that she doesn't sing the original versions of the songs for Miseducation because of some sort of legal issue. Have you, mm -hmm. I mean, did you ever subscribe to that theory or were you just aware that this is just what an artist that is steeped in the jazz tradition might do, which is like improvise on songs that are, again, 20 years old? Um, well, I'm certainly aware of the theory that she may not have been able to perform the original versions. I don't think that's an unfair assumption for audiences to make because mm -hmm. for 20 years she hasn't performed the original versions. Um, so, yeah, no one, I, I didn't know exactly what the story was. And quite frankly, I don't think anyone knew exactly what the story was until she just spoke about it right now. I I don't know. The, the medium piece was, uh, I've tried to stay really far out 
of the whole Lauren and Robert thing because mm-hmm. I feel very much like that's between y'all, Bennett, I ain't in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, it's very sticky. Yeah. It's very sticky. But what I, what I will say is that I've spent a lot of time since the book has dropped, obviously doing uh, book signings and talks and um, radio. And I think there is still such an incredible amount of love for Lauren Hill. And people express it to me all the time. And so I I don't like that the only commentary in this historic moment about a historic album. I mean many 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 albums turn 20 years old. The New York Times doesn't stop for everyone to acknowledge that mm-hmm. um for every album. I mean it was a global celebration last weekend. There were posts up from all over the world talking about the fact that this album was 20 years old. And I wish that the engagement that she had with her audience was about that and not about this. Yeah, I mean, like, you would wish that it'd be, it would be more than a medium post debunk, debunking certain, you know, public mistruths about things that have happened recently or misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about the 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 explanation of, uh, like, the name change, so to speak? Say, call going by Miss Hill... Um, which is not exactly a new thing. She would have her her uh, session artists refer to her as Miss Hill when she was recording, but now that's what she goes by. What is um, it? Yeah, that's not. I mean, a lot of the things about the Glassford pieces, like there's nothing new in that. I mean, I interviewed her in 2006. Certainly got the email telling me that I had to refer to her as Miss Hill. Mm-hmm. Just fine as long as she calls me Miss Morgan. I'm I'm older than her, <laughs> so if if it's a Miss Hill, Miss Morgan thing, then that's fine. Um, it, would I have felt a way if I had to address her as Miss Hill and she called me by my first name? Probably, but it wasn't specific to musicians. This was the way that she engaged with uh, press musicians. Uh, the industry, I don't know how people in her personal life address her, but on a professional level, everyone got the memo to call her Ms. Hill. What was she like in person? Um, you know, I wrote about, I did a cover story on her at, for Essence in 2006 when there was this rumor of um, the a Fuji's reunion album that obviously never happened. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I said that what I found was that genius was still there. Those quotes from that article still get like they're all over Tumblr. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a it was a Q and A, and there are things that she said that are just twenty years later. People are still reposting and saying, but certainly I felt like El Boogie had left the building for sure, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Miss Hill was a very different and uh, more guarded, more protective, and probably pricklier subject than mm-hmm. an L Boogie might have been. And that, you know, that's her right. It's absolutely her right. And she was very clear that that persona was um, a device of dis- distancing and protection because at that time, at least in 2006, she had uh, very strong feelings about ways that she felt she hadn't been treated well by fans and the industry. People always ask me, did I interview Lauren for this book? And Mm -hmm. the assumption is that I didn't because I tried and I wasn't able to. And I actually Mm -hmm. never attempted to. Um, I was really clear 
that I wanted to do a cultural history of an album. Um, And I felt very much like I wasn't really trying to unravel the the mystery or demystify whatever people feel the complexities of Lauryn Hill the person was. But I wanted to focus very much on this iconic um, contribution. And so being tightly focused on the album, I felt, and introducing voices who were also tightly focused on the album at that time Mm -hmm. um, was a way to accomplish that. And that was a pretty smart choice on my part. Now that I look at like all the things that are uh, floating around social media, but yeah, I you know the the brilliance of the album is also its timing. It drops at the end of the 20th century, which gives us a point of entry to talk about culturally and politically and socially where we were in terms of popular culture, where we were in terms of hip hop, where black women fit into that dynamic specifically and comparatively to where we are like 20 years later. So it's a way to look at the end of the 90s and what what it means to drop an album like that and have that kind of success pre a digital era, era. It's a way to also ask questions about what the Clinton administration's, you know, Bill Clinton, who's jokingly was called the first black president up until the time Barack Obama <laughs> until the, actually up took until the office. actual first black president yeah. yeah and then we you know we look back and we we look back at his policies and we see that they were really really devastating to black folks and to black women in particular and so the album also gave me a way being tightly focused on the album gave me a way to do that kind of um cultural work criticism work too yeah, it becomes a time capsule instead of just a character study, which is infinitely right. more interesting. Yeah. Joe, thank you. Excuse me. Excuse me. Miss Morgan, thank you very much for joining me. <laughs> uh, thank you for having me, and it was great. Yeah, it was a pleasure. All right, y'all, we're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, MyBookie. Now, people always ask me for advice. I have no idea why. Usually, it's what team to bet on this week. The truth is, I don't know who's going to win, but if you think you know, you got to check out MyBookie. I always tell people to bet with MyBookie. Trust me, guys, they are your best bet this season. They've been in business for years, have great reviews online, and their mobile site is easy to use. Not to mention they have in-game live betting and the most rewarding player perks in the business. Plus, for you fantasy guys out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many fantasy points a player will score in each game. So, lay down some cash and win big today. Scared money don't make none. You win, they pay. Join now and MyBookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code SHUFFLE when creating your account and claim up to $1,000 in free play. That's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E. And don't forget to use the promo code SHUFFLE when creating your account to claim the bonus. You play, you win, you get paid. going to be doing recommendations, a special recommendation section with another person that makes me look cool on a daily basis. We are talking to 
illustrator, graphic designer, virtuoso, Matt James. Hello. What's going on with you, man? I'm happy to be here, man. I'm a fan of the pod. Excited to be here. <laughs> wow, that is so touching. We went to a Father John Misty concert together, actually. That was like the first out-of-office thing we did together. Um, well, first, let's talk about the Blood Orange album. I'd love um, to. Negro Swan arrived last Friday, Blood Orange's fourth studio album, and you weren't totally sold on it. Well, let me first say that I love Blood Orange. I'm a big fan of Blood Orange. Any new Blood Orange album is a gift to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that the previous two albums uh, were a little better than this one. And that's fine. Freetown Sound and Cupid Deluxe. Freetown Sound and Cupid Deluxe, Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I don't think every great artist keeps on getting better every album after every album. Occasionally, they want to go on a little tangent, try a little of this, a little of that. Mm-hmm. And I don't th- I'm not worried that Blood Orange has peaked and is falling off. Mm-hmm. I think we got a lot of music left to come from him. And this just isn't my favorite of his records, but there's great moments on it. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite moment from this record? Oh, my favorite moment is... <laughs> I actually really like uh, Puff Daddy's appearance. <laughs> Uh, on this album? Yeah, yeah. I, I, sometimes I ask myself, like, you know, what is it going to take for me not to be afraid to be loved the way, like, I really want to be loved? But that I know how I really want to be loved. But I'm, but I'm, like, scared to really, really feel that. You know, it's like you want something, but you don't know if you can handle it. Because <laughs> I, I remember looking at the track list and being like, oh, hell yeah, he's got Puff Daddy on a track. Let's go. Let's go. And then I put on the I put on the track and it's like, man, you ever like, you know, sometimes you just you you want to be loved. And but like, you're scared. I, listen, I, it's like, oh, OK, we get like a Puff Daddy therapy. Session? I absolutely like, okay. love I, I love Diddy's like self-help motivational <laughs> speeches or whatever. I don't know if if when when Dev gave him the mic, he was he was like do whatever you want or like gave him a vibe or is expecting one thing and then just it's Diddy in the room just just doing just what like he feels off the top of the dome like letting you know how he feels at that moment well when you're richer than God but I think that probably my favorite it's not exactly my favorite moment on the album but I do enjoy Project Pat just being pulled <laughs> in just for the ambiance The song in question is called Chewing Gum. ASAP Rocky's on it, and so is one Project Pat. And Blood Orange performed this song on Jimmy Kimmel. And Project Pat is just milling around, on, like sitting on stage in front of Blood Orange and his MPC, and he doesn't say anything, really. <laughs> it's just like he's there because he's sampled, you know, Project Pat vocals, which is, it's a winning thing for you to do if you're out there making us and, and you're making an album. You yeah, know, showing up. Call Project battle, Pat. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think a lot of the, you know, there there's a f- few people featured throughout this album. And aside from, uh, you know, some of the women vocalists, uh, no one really makes that big of a of a splash of a splash right like I saw Steve Lacey is on this and Steve Lacey is 
one of my favorite like up and coming like I'm excited for Steve Lacey mm -hmm. he's a great producer songwriter and that track that he's on Out of Your League is is good but I was like I had to kind of search for him in that I guess that just is a thing that happens all over this album is everything kind of runs together it, the vibe of this album is almost sort of like there's a fixed camera on on Blood Orange and there's just this time lapse of who knows how long it is and you know occasionally collaborators just come and they leave without saying goodbye and yeah. you don't really know who's in the room right everything kind of runs together and it yeah. seems like it's just like it's, I'm going it's, to it's make it's like an evolving vibe that maybe isn't as focused as I think it could be mm -hmm. like in the past in some of his past work uh, some of my favorite work of his is kind of these really snappy tight pop songs mm -hmm. uh, and then intermixed with some of this more vibey flowy kind of kind of stuff that doesn't necessarily have a you know a tight structure and, and goal to it and I yeah. I I think he's at his best when he's doing both of those, when he's making those tight songs and also kind of going on these little journeys. And I feel like this album is maybe too heavy mm -hmm. on those journeys for my taste, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. And and not enough of that. Not that, enough of the that, pop music you would like. To, yeah. to reel it back in. But anyway, on from what you are not so taken with at the moment, what are you really into? I am really into this dude who goes by Channel Trace. Just put out an EP. Um, the Trannel Chase EP. Yep. Yep. Take it, take it, back. And it's his debut as his own artist. This is a guy who has done some DJing and some producing uh, for some other artists. He's worked with Kehlani. He's worked with Duckworth. He was on tour with Duckworth as mm -hmm. his DJ. But he's he's really he's stepped out behind the other artists and and into his own thing. And it's really interesting stuff. someone who was raised in Compton and Linwood, um, brought up uh, in the church, a um, lot of dancing in the family, mm -hmm. um, was, you know, a drummer for a long time. He's always been drumming, went away to college, kind of found uh, DJing, started DJing parties. He's kind of just absorbed all of these influences uh, throughout his life from punk music to Marvin Gaye to just everything and now what he's doing is he's making he's making dance music that is inspired by kind of Detroit techno and Chicago house sounds mm -hmm. but has this undeniable undeniable infusion of that kind of west coast laid back yeah. hip hop aesthetic mm -hmm. and it all comes across really genuine and really passionate and just distilled into something that's also super well produced. Yeah. He was inspired by Detroit House and like uh, Chicago Basement Soul, but it sounds like basement music that's happening above ground. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, a good way of putting it. Yeah. Definitely has that sort of 
Los Angeles laid back, well, the West Coast laid back feeling of it mm-hmm. um, to that energetic style. Yeah, that that vibe that you're talking, like, you know, he's got a song called Top Down. Yeah. Which, what is there anything more hip-hop in L.A. than writing a song just about having the top down, driving around, <laughs> feeling a vibe? Can we hear like, a bit of that for a second? Top down, top down. You were saying though off air that it was a like very specific thing that he found that made him want to make house music though. Yeah, he was listening to Drake's Passion Fruit as <laughs> we all were. Everyone was. And yeah. I th- you know, I think that moment, uh, that sample that a lot of people, you know, don't know where it's from uh, in Passion Fruit of the DJ just kind of pausing everything, talking to the crowd, setting the, setting the tone, yeah, and then coming that? back into it. You got to take the set in this motherfucker or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's just like really, it's... Y'all get some more drinks in, you yeah. know, sound a lot better, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a Moody Man record called uh, Live at Cutloose Second Birthday Party. I've, that was driving me crazy. It's, I couldn't yeah, figure out what it was. Apparently, it's just taken from a live set that he was doing. It's yeah. not even an official release. Uh, but uh, that that sample in Passion Fruit, he sat down and went, "What is that?" And you know, was as a producer, he's always interested in like what people are sampling. So he checked it out, and he he went down the rabbit hole of Moody Man and Detroit techno. And started listening to all that techno stuff that he was unfamiliar with. And he got really into like Jimmy Edgar. Um, and it just kind of, this is a guy who has just like kind of followed his his passions and his interests the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not, you know, trying to do it. It's not an intentional blending of genres, a calculated thing. He's just really following his interests. Right. Um, and that techno sound is is like right up top in a lot of the music but his vocals are a little bit more present than vocals would be on your average techno track Mm -hmm. Uh, and he throws some house stuff in there there's some more modern uh, production elements going on in there and controller is is almost like a mission statement of him as a new artist where he is setting the table for for him being in control, he's like the god of this god mode produced uh, music. Like, mm-hmm. I am the controller. Get your ass up on the dance floor. Girl, you a maniac. Your body is a game. Fuck the lane. Fuck the fame. I am the controller. I am the controller. <laughs> and, and you submit to him controlling you. <laughs> Matt, thank you very much for joining me and talking to me about Blood Orange and Channel Trace. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Your body is a change. Fuck your brain. Fuck your man. I am the promoter. Got more. Throw some sub in that bitch. Throw some sub in that bitch. Throw some sub in That's it. That's all we got for y'all this week. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to Joan Morgan. Check out her book, She Begat This, 20 Years of the Miseducation of Lauren Hill. There's a link to that in the show notes. Also, thanks to Matt James for the recommendations. Shout out to my producers, Agia Chagre and Zach Mack. And I want to give a special thanks to Agia Chagre, whose last show of On Shuffle is today. 
She will be missed. I'm going to cry about it, but not on the air. Don't forget to check out our playlist that we will be updating every week with the songs that we're listening to. A link to that is in the description. Also, please rate and subscribe if you like the show. We would really appreciate it. Peace. See you next week where I have an interview with surprise, surprise, Sid Bennett, otherwise known as Sid the Kid, otherwise known colloquially as Sid of the Internet. She came in, we hung out, we talked about some stuff for a while. It was great. See you next week. Peace.